Well, I have the privilege of meditating on God's Word with you this morning. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. I'll give you a second to get there. This is the story of when Matthew is called by Jesus to become one of his, uh, one of his disciples, and then Jesus fellowships with sinners and upsets the Pharisees. And Jesus has an interesting response to that. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Well, today as we turn to this story in Matthew about the mercy of our Lord, I'm confronted with two penetrating ideas, and neither of them is particularly easy for me to accept. The first thing I'm confronted with is the fact that I need the mercy of God. I need the mercy of God. God judges sin, and I don't like that idea very much. I don't want to need God's mercy. I don't want to need the mercy of my righteous judge. I don't think that any of us does. We want to be righteous on our own, don't we? But Jesus says that we're not righteous and that we can never be righteous without him. And therefore, we need his mercy lest judgment fall upon us. The second idea that penetrates my soul is that since God has shown mercy to me, I'm called to be merciful too. And that's because God, God's word tells me to imitate him. In Ephesians 5.1, imitate God. And so if I'm not merciful, I'm not imitating God. But in fact, when we take a look at mercy, mercy actually calls me back into the world that I left behind as a sinner, not to participate in sin, but to address it with the power of the gospel. That's real mercy, to reveal the gospel to a lost and broken world. Well, in our story today, we're going to meet some Pharisees who think that compassion like this is secondary to strict obedience to all of the rituals and practices that God God had taught them to do. But Jesus tells them that mercy is the priority instead. And so as we contemplate how the Pharisees overlook mercy in our passage today, I'm afraid that we might find some similarities with ourselves. In many ways, I think our Christian culture has drawn us out of the world, not into it. As the world around us today is busy fleeing from God, we might find ourselves busy fleeing from the world, so much so that we forget the sinners whom we're leaving behind. And so as the world rejects God, we object And we treat more and more into isolation from the world, and I think that's when we can really end up thinking that we're better than the world. We can think too highly of ourselves, just like the Pharisees did. As my dad would say, we might become too big for our britches. We might forget our own sinful roots, and we might forget to see others through God's merciful eyes. And that's when we retreat behind the walls that we've built to keep the world out. Well, some of those walls, of course, are are necessary and even ordained by Scripture. As the church, we jealously guard our doctrine and theology just as the Apostle Paul commands us to do. We exercise church discipline when necessary. We maintain the essentials and principles of the, the Christian faith within our fellowship. We do these things because we want to stay the course. We want to stay true to the character and nature of God. Amen? 
But brothers and sisters, it is possible for us to become so focused on protecting ourselves from the ugly world outside that we can forget that key opponent of God's character, his mercy towards sinners. You know, we're, we're right to be concerned about the world's influence on us and on our children. But we can forget that while we guard the deposit that has been given to us, as the Apostle Paul said, God in 2 Timothy 1.7 gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We don't need to fear what this world can do to us, even when we suffer for the sake of the gospel. And in fact, God is calling us into this world to put his mercy on display. That's exactly what Christ prays for in his high priestly prayer. That famous night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying for his disciples in John 17, beginning in verse 14. And he says this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But listen to what he says next in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them so that they can do what they've been called to do. They are not of the world, in verse 16, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so the heart of our call to be in the world is to show the mercy of God. Christ has sent us into the world not so that we can isolate ourselves from sinners, but so that we can fulfill a beautiful and grand mission, and that is to stand in the world having been sanctified in the truth without fear for this reason. Jesus continues his prayer in verse 21, so that the world may believe you have sent me. And then in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You see, Christ wants us to be in the world, to be visible and engaged, to be his witnesses. And we do this by building meaningful relationships with unbelievers so that the world may know and believe. That's real mercy. And so we're not here to show the world how righteous we are. We're here to to prove how righteous and merciful our God is. We're here to feed the poor, to heal the sick, to care for the oppressed, to soothe the sin-sick soul with the balm of God's amazing grace. But our fear of the world can cause us to neglect mercy, can it? It can cause us to build Christian walls around ourselves so strong and high that we no longer have any contact with sinners. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, shutting out sinners is the epitome of ruthlessness. But Jesus is the epitome of mercy. He fellowships with sinners so that they they can have access to grace. This is what we're going to see today. Mercy is the underpinning of the ministry of our Lord. And so it only follows that our proclamation of the good news to the world would be rooted in the very same mercy that Christ has shown us. Ephesians 2.5, here's where we find God's mercy. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. God saved us by grace because he had mercy on us. 
And that's why our Lord has sent us into the world, so that we can show his mercy to the world in the context of his love and his grace. And so as we turn to Matthew 9, here's the big idea of our passage. God has shown us mercy, so like Christ, we should be merciful too. God has shown us mercy, so like Christ, we should be merciful too. And so as we dig into these verses, uh, here's how the verses are laid out They're in three sections. Uh, in verse 9, Jesus calls a sinner into the midst of his sin. The second section is in verses 10 and 11. Jesus fellowships with sinners, but of course the Pharisees object. And then in uh, section 3, in verses 12 and 13, Jesus answers the Pharisee, and he reminds them that, that mercy is the epitome of his ministry, and it should be the epitome of who we are as well. And so let's read Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the household, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Let's take a look at our first section in verse 9. Jesus calls a sinner. Jesus says, uh, come back home to Capernaum. and And he sees a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he tells him, follow me. And what does Matthew do? He gets up and follows Christ. Well, as Matthew has laid out the events in his gospel leading up to this moment of Jesus calling him to be a disciple, the context shows us that uh, Christ is revealing step by step the authority that is given to him by his Father, his divine right over nature and over demons and even over sin. And this is important for us to review because in each of these things we see the mercy of Christ. Jesus has recently returned from a short trip from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In chapter 8, we see him in the boat on the, uh, going over to the other side, and he calms a storm and displays his power even over the forces of nature. And, of course, this calms the disciples' fear of the storm. On the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus heals two men who are possessed by demons. And so Jesus even has authority over demons. And then he returns home to Capernaum, and Jesus proves his authority to do something a whole lot more significant than controlling the weather and casting out demons. He forgives sins. He forgives sins. And the second verse of chapter 9, friends of a paralyzed man bring the, the man to Jesus, and Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The scribes who look on are, of course, doubting his authority to do that, and they assert that Jesus is blaspheming because forgiving sins was something that only God could do. Of course, they're right about that. They're just not, it's just not sinking in yet that Jesus is God. 
So to prove to the Pharisees that his words of forgiveness are not empty words, Jesus gives them evidence that they can see. He heals, a par- he heals the paralyzed man. The guy gets up and walks away. Wouldn't that have been something to see? Jesus has the authority to forgive sins as well, and he proves it by this miracle. All these miracles set us up to understand the motive of our Lord. And it gives us a glimpse of the mercy of the cross. In each case, Jesus is looking on the plight of his people, of, of people who are suffering. Jesus is looking on them with compassion and with pity and a real regard for their misery. But he doesn't just feel sorry for them. He does something about it. He has mercy on them by relieving them of their suffering. You see, mercy isn't just an emotion for Jesus. Mercy is action. Mercy is compassion that turns into acts of grace. Mercy seeks out those who are in need. Mercy has compassion for the plight of the suffering, no matter who they are or the nature of their suffering. Mercy takes action to heal and to bring relief, to comfort and to lift up. This is what's on Jesus' heart as he walks up to Matthew who's sitting there in his tax booth. Jesus had been healing people with physical problems, illnesses and diseases, and he'd been healing people with spiritual maladies like fear and demons, and he's even forgiven sins. But in Matthew, in Matthew he sees a man who is dead. A man is dead to his sins. This is a man who is completely shut off from God, and Jesus does something about it. Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. In essence, this is a a call to repentance. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me. Those are powerful words. You see, Jesus is calling Matthew to a new life, to follow him by leaving behind the life that he's living. And this is our model for repentance. Matthew will devote his life to the example of Christ as his teacher, as the one to whom he will uh, uh, put all of his trust and he will obey Christ. He's completely devoted to Christ from now on. This was the pattern of anybody who became a, a teacher's disciple in Jewish culture. And following your teacher, you would learn to think and behave like your teacher, so much so that after time, you would be almost indistinguishable from your teacher in many ways. Jesus' expectation of Matthew is the same, and brothers and sisters, it's the same for us. Follow me. Become like me. Behave like me. Think like me. But what makes Jesus call on Matthew so so remarkable and even sort of strange and surprising, at least to the Jews, is that Matthew is clearly a sinner. What the Jewish leaders expect is that Jesus would call them to be his disciples. After all, they're the ones who have it right when it comes to religion. They're the moral ones. They're the righteous ones. They're the ones who please God with their meticulous obedience to every jot and tittle of the law. But they were too big for their britches. And we can get that way too. We might say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're biblical. We're the ones who don't miss a Bible study. I mean, I listen to a sermon every day on the radio and it's John MacArthur to boot, right? I podcast Matt Chandler. 
You know, and we know all the rules for Christian dating, and we're going to refuse to kiss until our wedding day. We only watch G-rated movies. We've got our, our doctrine just so. We've got it in the right order. We've got it right. And you know what? We don't want to pollute our holiness by, by associating with sinners, do we? You see, we can be very good at obeying God's commands and knowing our Bibles. All that's a good thing. But we've got to be careful in our zeal to be holy, not to forget God's command to be merciful as your Father is merciful. Luke chapter 6, verse 36. Jesus spoke those words in the context of loving our enemies. Talk about mercy. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This goes hand in hand with His powerful words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus is showing us right here in our passage in Matthew 9 exactly how to be merciful, to look on a sinner and have pity for his awful condition and do something about it. Call them to repentance on the foundation of the mercy of God. Call them to repent and be like Christ and do it by building a meaningful relationship with them just as Jesus is about to do with Matthew, a sinner. You know, in, in my days on Capitol Hill, I saw so many believers try to proclaim the gospel without building a relationship with people. And they would proclaim the gospel with a megaphone on the street corner. It was an ugly sight. They'd stand on the street corner with signs that said things like, God hates sinners. And then they'd be yelling at people to repent as they walked by. I'm not making this up. That isn't mercy. There's no way in the world that that's mercy. And neither is it an accurate testimony about who God is because it lacks mercy. I think sometimes we fall into that same routine in our lives, don't we? We go about our lives in our attempts to show people who Christ is and our zeal for what's right. We end up demanding that people who don't know God somehow behave like God. To behave as if they knew God. How in the world can that be if they don't know Him? We ridicule them on Facebook. We lambast people who believe differently than we do. And we end up leaving them with the impression that Christianity has nothing to do with mercy. Nothing to do with a God who wants to lift them into the glory of His grace. I have many unbelieving friends who think that. In large part because of those people standing on the street corner with their megaphone. But also because of things they see on Facebook and elsewhere and because of the way that they've been treated by people who are calling themselves Christians. In doing all these things, we might force our religion on people, but the Christ that they end up meeting in us is not the merciful Christ who comes to the tax booth and says hello to Matthew and says, follow me. Matthew is a sinner in a category of his own. He is a tax collector. Tax collectors to the Jews of that day were the very definition of sin. They were outcasts because theirs was a profession that was essentially legalized highway robbery. 
Like other tax collectors, Matthew probably stole from the people he took taxes from. And since he was a Jew working for this foreign pagan government of the Romans, he was especially reviled as a traitor to God and his people. This is the kind of man that Jesus is calling. Jesus wants this guy to be his disciple, a man with no scruples about taking what he hasn't earned however he can get it. And so it's no wonder that the Jews reviled people like Matthew. It's bad enough to the Jews that Jesus is calling this unclean man, though, a sinner in a category of his own to be his disciple, but it's what happens next that really gets him. This is what really torques him, and this is our second section. Jesus fellowships with sinners. Matthew had heard Jesus call in verse 9, so he rises up and he follows him. And the first thing that Matthew does, and I love this, is he throws a party for Jesus. Look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And the fact that Jesus is reclining at the table uh, indicates that Jesus is the guest of honor and that this is a special meal. Jesus isn't just grabbing a sandwich in between appointments. This is a big deal. The, the, the whole affair is designed by Matthew for his friends to meet Jesus. And the reason for this is that Matthew's excited. Jesus has called him out of a sinful life. You see, to Jesus, Matthew isn't an outcast. He's welcome in the presence of our Lord. And Matthew's being called to a new and better life by following Jesus. Jesus gives him hope. And so naturally, Matthew wants his friends to know Jesus too. He, he invites the only friends he's got, tax collectors and sinners, these fellow outcasts, these, these sinful people, these unclean people. You know, even if, even if Matthew had invited the Pharisees, they wouldn't have come because they would not have never, ever, ever fellowship with a sinner. But there's Jesus. He's right in the middle of this crowd of sinners. He's talking to them. He's listening to them. He's hearing their stories. He's caring about them and laughing with them. And he's even having compassion on them as he calls them to a new and better life. But then in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, according to Jewish tradition, the rabbi, the teacher, is responsible for the conduct of his disciples. But instead of approaching Jesus directly, the Pharisees question his disciples. And it's really a condescending question. Because what they're doing is accusing Jesus and his followers of having a corrupt character because of the bad company that they're keeping. We might think the same thing, though, if we heard about a Christian friend who is fellowshipping with corrupt people, especially if they were hanging out with them a lot. We might think that our dear brother or sister is flirting with a return to a sinful life. It would at least raise an eyebrow, right? I know I've done it. Raise my eyebrow before. We'd, we'd want to make sure that, that our friend was speaking into the lives of those sinners and not the other way around. Well, there were lots of raised eyebrows among the Pharisees as they watched Jesus enjoying a meal with this offensive crowd. These were people who had abandoned God's law. 
And since Capernaum was a place where, where Jews and Gentiles were relatively friendly toward each other, there is a high probability that Jesus is also fellowshipping with Gentiles. The Gentiles were as bad as tax collectors to the Pharisees. Gentiles are completely outside of the kingdom of God. And so it has to be abundantly clear to the Pharisees, these people, these people, the last thing on their minds is righteousness. These filthy people cannot be sitting around worrying about righteousness. And yet here's this Jewish teacher named Jesus having a meal with tax collectors and sinners and these, these forbidden, unclean people. Table fellowship to the Jews was a symbol of a real bond between the people sitting around the table or reclining around the table. Uh, to, to be at the same table meant to the Jews that Jesus and his disciples were agreeing with the sin of the tax collectors and the sinners, that they were embracing their lifestyle simply to be at the same table with them. It called into question whether Jesus was really committed to doing God's will. It represented to them a real danger to their religion, to them. To sup with sinners was to threaten righteousness itself. This was a sure way to corrupt a righteous man and make him unacceptable to God. But of course, they were missing the point. They were missing the point, and it is that point that Jesus reveals to them in our third section where Jesus answers the Pharisees. Even though the Pharisees are questioning the disciples, the buck stops with our Lord. It is Jesus who answers them in verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, that is Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, here Jesus is laying out his motive for the whole of his ministry, for why he became flesh to dwell, to dwell among us. We read so often of how Jesus came because of love, and that's true. We also uh, are fond of thinking about how he came to show us grace. That's also very true. But brothers and sisters, it is love that compels his mercy. And it is mercy that compels Christ to carry out the supreme act of grace on the cross. And so Jesus is saying that just as a doctor doesn't go to the health club to treat the well, the Lord doesn't spend his precious time on earth mingling with people who claim that they're righteous on their own. People who would refuse his treatment anyway. Christ instead seeks out those who are sick, those people who know that they need help. And that's where we were when we became believers, right? We knew our sin. We knew that we were sick. We knew our unworthiness before God, and we knew that Christ is the cure for that misery. But our Lord's doctor-patient analogy also illustrates how foolish the Pharisees' thinking is. Their logic, in essence, is that they would expect a doctor to refuse to see somebody who was sick. Can you imagine that? You hurry into the emergency room with a broken arm and the doctor refuses to see you because he says, well, you know what? You really shouldn't have been doing whatever it was that broke your arm in the first place. But that's the Pharisee's attitude. 
my grandfather, my granddaddy Browning. He was a Methodist minister. And he professed that the church is a hospital for sinners. He is exactly right. God desires mercy for the sinner. And if the church is the hospital for sinners, that means we're the physician's assistants. We're the first responders. And if we're to follow the example of Christ, God wants us to go out and find the sinners and the sick at the tax booth and at the dinner parties. He wants us to call them to repentance so that they can be made well. But the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with mercy like that. They refused to offer mercy to the very people who needed it so desperately. But you know, it is so easy for us to forget that the epitome of the gospel is mercy. That the core of the ministry of our Lord is mercy. Mercy is Christ meeting us sinners right where we are, seated at our tax booth, and then lifting us out of the misery of our wretchedness and into the light of His glory. And so since mercy is at the core of the ministry of Christ, it should be at the core of who we are too. We ought to be a people known for our mercy. God desires mercy. That's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? The Samaritan looked on the plight of a man who was lying half dead in the road. The Samaritan was an outcast. He was hated by the Jewish establishment. But the Levite and the priest who had already hurried by the injured man, they didn't understand what it meant to love one's neighbor. And so Jesus chooses this Samaritan for the main character of his parable to help us to understand that who our neighbors are is not a matter of nationality or race. It, that mercy for a fellow human being doesn't depend on color or creed either. Somebody say amen. God's mercy transcends every single one of our human boundaries and barriers. So the Samaritan, who was an outcast, he had far more reason to go scurrying on by this injured man than the Levite and the priest did but in Luke 10, 33, when he saw him, he had compassion. And he did something about it. He bound up the man's wounds. He took care of him. He, he took him to a place where he could heal. Isn't that exactly what the gospel is for? To heal us of our sin? The gospel finds us broken and battered and left for dead by the roadside. The gospel binds up our wounds. And the gospel takes us to the hospital for sinners where we can be healed. And so, my friends, it bears asking a difficult question. Is that who we are? Are we a hospital for sinners? Are we known for our mercy? When someone speaks your name, does mercy come to mind like it does when we say the Good Samaritan? Are we known for the way that we care? As followers of Christ, are we people who point the way to the same Christ who sat down with tax collectors and sinners and shared a meal with them? Or do people know us more for our politics? Do they know us more for our views on social issues? 
Do they know us for our stance, our position, our opinions, our lines in the sand? You see what Jesus is doing in pointing out to the Pharisees his own ministry to the sin sick. Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees their heartless religion. He sees in their religion a grave deficiency, a lack of mercy for sinners. And he also sees in them a lack of understanding for their own need for mercy. And that's why Jesus says in verse 13, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So let's go and learn what that means. Jesus is quoting from Hosea 6.6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. As the Jews confront Jesus at Matthew's house, they're expecting him to say that strict obedience to the commandments of God is far more important than mercy and compassion. But Jesus, along with Hosea, is saying the opposite. That while the nature of our obedience is very important, our morality, our hunger to learn doctrine and theology, our lifestyle, as important as those things are, they are secondary evidence of our faith in God. The primary evidence of our faith is mercy. What Hosea asserts and what Christ agrees with is that our faith in God ought to cause us to acquire loving and compassionate hearts. That's the essence of having been transformed by God's grace and mercy. It isn't that our Bible studies and expositional sermons are bad any more than the Jews following the law was bad. God had told them to do those things. But what happened to the Jews is that in their lack of compassion, their obedience to God had just shriveled up into a crusty shell of cold religion. And it was at odds with the mercy of God. The same thing can happen to us. Christ might say to us today, I desire mercy but not Bible studies. I desire compassion, not perfect sermons. I desire mercy put into action, not a people who are insulated from the world. Are Bible studies important? Of course they are. Are sermons important? You betcha. Is guarding the deposit that has been given to us necessary? Absolutely. But mercy is the most important of them all. Jesus' point is that mercy is the higher calling. The result of true faith, of true obedience, is that we become merciful people. Mercy must be the inevitable result of following our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus also quotes this verse in Hosea to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 7. The the Pharisees have accused Jesus' disciples of violating the Sabbath by plucking some grain as they walk along and they eat the grain. Jesus' point is very similar, that the point of religion is not to burden people. The point of faith in God is mercy. And so think about just a few easy picking examples here that we just talked about of how we might show mercy in simple ways. Maybe in addition to the Bible studies we go to, maybe we need to get to know the jerk at work. 
or maybe the jerks at work (laughs) so that we can show them the gospel of mercy. Show them what we've been learning in our Bible study. Maybe after the sermon, we should pray more with the hurting people in the pews around us and debate a little less about the finer point that the preacher missed. Maybe instead of reading another batch of articles about how everything's wrong with the world, we should call up an unbeliever and ask how they're doing. Mercy comes in many shapes and sizes, but we've got to understand that mercy is the Lord's priority. And then, and it's only then, that we'll make it a priority of our own. Mercy is what motivated Christ. In verse 13, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These are strong words as much as they are words of mercy. On the one hand, Jesus is saying that his mercy is limited. He's telling the Pharisees, I didn't come for you. I came for them. He's telling the Pharisees that as far as he's concerned, they are the outcasts, not the tax collectors. Jesus is just using the Pharisees' assessment of themselves by calling them righteous. But of course, Jesus doesn't see them that way. They are sinners of the first order because they lack mercy and they they reject the idea that they need to repent and so ironically it's the pharisees who perhaps need jesus the most so on the other hand jesus is calling sinners jesus is identifying those who agree that they're sinners those who understand that they're far from god those who know they need mercy just like the tax collector in jesus parable in luke 18 who beat his breast saying God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Sinners know they need mercy because Jesus has called out to them and they have heard his voice. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. When my brother and I were teenagers, we went for a hike near Old Rag Mountain one day. And my brother decided to be a little adventurous and go off the trail and explore a little bit. And of course, he got lost. He had no idea which way to go. And so I called out to him. And I heard the panic in his voice when he called back. He needed to hear my voice because all the trees around him, all of it, 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 all, they all looked the same. And every direction looked like either the right way or the wrong way to go. And so I kept calling. And he came to my voice And he made it back to the trail. If I'd been a Pharisee, I wouldn't have done that. I would have left him just to wander around in the woods. I would have been perfectly content with that because I was on the right path. That's all that matters to me. I am on the right path. But Jesus has called out to us, brothers and sisters. And by his grace, we've heard him. He expects us He expects that that we in turn will call out his name in his name to sinners as well. He wants us to call upon sinners so that they have a chance to repent. But we call out out to them not, not as people who are better than sinners. That's how the Pharisees viewed themselves. We call out as forgiven sinners, as people 
as people who know not only what it's like to be lost, but who have the joyous understanding of what it's like to be found. And so mercy means that we see people not as problems, not as social issues or statistics, but as human beings who need exactly the same thing that we need, God's mercy. Mercy means that we put compassion into action and that we invite sinners to feast on the goodness of Christ, to drink in His righteousness through saving faith in Him. Mercy means that we see people through the eyes of our Lord and we look on them with compassion. But what a pity it is when we forget that mercy is at the core of the gospel, at the core of our mission in the world. God wants you and me to speak up for him with compassion, to put his mercy on display so that those who hear his voice will have the opportunity to respond. But we've got to go where the sinners are, just as our Lord did. Mercy calls us back into this world that we left behind as sinners, not to participate in it, but to address it with the power of the gospel. We've got to learn to be true friends to unbelievers. We've got to become known as people who care about people because, brothers and sisters, that's the only way our testimony about Christ will be heard. And so our take-home lesson today is it's really simple to remember and recite, but it's not really that easy to apply, is it? Not that easy to put into practice. God has shown us mercy, so like Christ, we should be merciful too. What is Jesus teaching us here about ourselves? Well, we've been reminded today of what may be a very difficult thing to fully accept, that we need God's mercy, just as Matthew did. But dwelling on that fact is a hard thing to do. Grace really seems the easier thing to think about because it speaks of that glorious act by which Christ has relieved us forever of our burden of sin. But mercy, mercy conjures up why we must be relieved of that sin, of that burden. There's no soft way of thinking about needing the mercy of God. The kind of mercy that God has shown us isn't like the cop who who let you off today because you were speeding to church. The mercy of God isn't like a teacher deciding to grade you on a curve. The mercy of our Lord surpasses anything that we can imagine on a human level. Because in His mercy, the Father has looked upon our sins with compassion instead of wrath. He has saved us from his eternal wrath by the blood of his son. And so the best way that that I think we can even begin to grasp the magnitude of the mercy of God is to think about it bluntly, without varnish, without pretense, without any sugar to make the medicine go down a little easier. We have to think about God's mercy in the stark reality that we find it. Do you know, do you know that your sins had doomed you to the Father's eternal wrath, His holy, righteous, just vengeance for sin? Are you sure of it? 
Or are you holding out for some kind of shred of worthiness in your soul that would lessen God's wrath, that would lessen His anger towards you? Hebrews 10 says, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus said in Luke 12, 5, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And he's talking about God. And Jesus again in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Brothers and sisters, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And his decision about who to have mercy on is always right. God's mercy will never end for those who believe in Christ. Hallelujah. But to those who do not believe in his son, they will not be given mercy. They will have exactly what they have demanded in life when they have rejected Christ. They will have no Christ. They will have no mercy. Do you understand that without Christ, that God's eternal wrath really was for you? Except that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Except that you know him by his grace. And that even your faith in him is not of your own doing at all. Is it real to you that God takes your sins that seriously? That the wages of your sins, your sins, is death. Christ's death on the cross was the ultimate proof of that. That's why he died, because the wages of sin is death, and the only way to redeem us is through his death. Is that real to you today? If that is real, then you've also learned a glorious lesson about the mercy of God, that he is merciful. You know that, he, that his pity on you compelled him compelled him to that supreme act of grace on the cross. Hallelujah. And you know that as Christ hung on the cross, that he hung there in your place, knowing your name, your face, your sins. It was for you that he hung there in anguish and cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in your place that he experienced the unspeakable agony of being separated from his father. And it was for you that he was crushed. If you know that, then you know the mercy of Christ. You know the pity and compassion with which your Lord has looked upon you and how he saw you in your wretchedness and how he has lifted you up into the majesty and joy of his grace. And so, brothers and sisters, knowing God's mercy, how could we ever stand to be unmerciful? How could we ever misrepresent our Lord in that way? Because like Matthew, we are forgiven sinners 
We are forgiven sinners who have had mercy poured out upon us and our burden is gone. And so let's rejoice because Christ has shown us mercy and so like Christ, we should be merciful too. Amen. Let's pray.